Genesis 3.24 So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. With me is Bryant Bales. And we're here to talk to you about the Bible. Nothing more, nothing less. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us this week. It really has been a, a very good experience doing this so far. And uh, yeah. it's just been a really uh, fulfilling experience to be together and to, to study together uh, from the Bible, uh, direct from the Bible, nothing standing in the way. Um, you know, we, we kind of made a rule, no real commentaries, no real, you know, we can read those things on a normal basis and that's not a problem, but we don't want anything to get in the way of understanding what the text is for sure. So as we start, mm -hmm. you know, we, we want to uh, encourage you to think about uh, the Bible in a reverent fashion, in a reverent way. We want to encourage you to consider God's glory through the text that he's revealed and uh, and so we invite you to open up your Bible and study with us if if possible. Maybe you're maybe you're commuting. Maybe you're going uh, from your home to your work, and maybe you don't have the time or the ability to open up your Bible and read uh, with us today. And that's totally fine. Uh, we're going to read for you in just a minute. Now, in terms of contacting us, we want to encourage you to email us. Our email is walking through the book at protonmail.com walking through the book at protonmail.com. You can reach us there. Uh, we're thinking about, I'm thinking about maybe having a Facebook at some point. Uh, we're still recording these things actually beforehand. Uh, we've not gone live with the podcast at the time of this recording. And so we're trying to just get a backlog before we start so that we're not too pressured with the workload once we go, go live there. So uh, without further ado, Bryant, are you ready? Absolutely. I'm asking if you're ready. I'm going to do the reading, but uh, but that's totally okay too. <laughs> Genesis 3, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. 
But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand, and take also the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden, to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way, to guard the way to the tree of life. As we make some initial observations on this chapter, Genesis 3, we've seen so far God creating the universe, creating earth, creating humanity, creating everything else around us. And in Genesis 2, we got 
more of that. We got more details about that. And here we see the narrative essentially starting. And this is something where we begin to see some, you might say, forward movement. Um, and, and I want to talk briefly just about this serpent that we're, uh, that we're exposed to. I mean, one of the things that jump out at me, and I, I think this is one of those things that we need to take a, take a, uh, we need to consider seriously. We don't want to automatically assume that something is something else in the scriptures. And so when I think about the serpent, what tells us initially, you know, what, what do people, Brian, what, what do, what do we typically say that this person is, that this, this serpent is? Yeah. Usually it's, it's Satan. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that's wrong at all, but maybe we can take a step back and ask like, why is this Satan? Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. why, you Mm -hmm. know, we have to be willing to question this, right? Because the term adversary is not used in this chapter. That's the term that really, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about Satan. He is the adversary. And who's that? Who's he the adversary of? He's the adversary of the Lord. He's the Mm. adversary of God. Uh, But, but, uh, maybe we can kind of pick up on this in the theme section because the, I think there's a very clear reason that this can only be Satan. Uh, mm. I don't think this could be anything else but him. And there's a reason for that that, that we want to get into. Um, but uh, but did you have anything on that? Any thoughts? Uh, no, because, um, yeah, you'll probably, uh, like you said, get more, more into it. Um, but I think it's interesting the way the serpent is described as well. Uh, something that just kind of an interesting description when he says that the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And I think I, I used to take that almost like, wow, the serpent is really cunning. Like that's pretty high regard, you know, but I think that's actually not the right way to look at it. Because think about this, if someone told you, like, hey, Steve, and you know what? You really are a lot more cunning than a cow. And if you thought about that, I mean, is that really <laughs> a compliment? I mean, that's really pretty degrading. And wow. I think that actually yeah. sets a context that, you know, the man and the woman were very capable of seeing through this. And the fact that the hmm. serpent was listened to is actually pretty embarrassing and degrading to the glory of the image of God that he put in man. Um, so I just think that that's a very interesting way to describe wow. Satan and set up the chapter, I think. Huh. Yeah, I mean, you, you, that's a that's a fantastic point. Because, uh, I mean, any beast of the field, he's not more cunning than man. Yeah, they're he's not, right. He's not, it's not saying that he's more cunning than right. Adam and Eve. Right, exactly. Uh, and we've already established that it seems like Adam and Eve are the most... Uh, uh, the most intricate or the most advanced creations that God has put forward. Um, not to say that they're necessarily better than the animals per se, but they are given dominion over the animals uh, to exercise that dominion. They've got to have some method over them. And even with snakes, of course, you know, snakes are just another animal. Yeah. And so that, that again brings up the question, who really are we talking about here? Mm. And we can kind of pick back up on that in just a little bit. Um, I think it's interesting that they make this attempt at covering themselves once they know they're naked right. and they take some, uh, 
take some, what were they, fig leaves? Yeah, they sewed fig leaves together. Made themselves coverings. But in verse 21, God makes tunics for them. To me, this suggests that what they made wasn't good enough <laughs> right? Uh, to actually give give covering for them. And, and I kind of want to take that opportunity to discuss uh, the term nakedness in the mm. Bible. Um, you know, people today will say, oh, well, I'm going to the, going to the beach and I'm going to have uh, this bikini on or I'm right. going to have these swim trunks on. And, you know, I'm not naked. But in terms of bi- biblical nakedness, uh, the term nakedness can mean any form of revealing of things that are not essentially supposed to be revealed. Um, we've got this sense of shame within us about nakedness. Mm. And uh, and this is where we see that really coming from. They didn't have that before. We established that in chapter 2, verse verse 25, that they, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. But now, now that they've undergone this, now that they've done this, they're not, they, they, they are ashamed. And they try to they try to cover themselves, but obviously that's not enough. Just kind of interesting to me. Mm, yeah. So what are, what are some things that kind of jumped out at you in that reading, Brian? Well, it's interesting that just there's one thing with the consequences that got outlined. I think it's interesting that uh, the consequences were more than what he said they would be at least maybe by appearance it appears as if the consequences are more than what he said in chapter 2 uh, back in verse 17 in chapter 217 he says for the, in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die so the consequences are more than just that they themselves die it's kind of like the earth died too uh, like death kind of spread everywhere into every faculty of, of their lives basically uh, maybe that's something that we can talk more about and something else that maybe is just uh, something to come, bu- come back to later in application maybe, but just an initial thing is the order of creation was reversed and when the woman submitted to Satan because, you know, God designed obviously himself to be Lord over all and then he made man and then a help meet to man was the woman and then underneath them are the beasts of the field. And what happened is Satan's being compared to the beasts of the field. So you've got Satan being put on top and then the woman beneath him. And then the man submits to the woman, putting himself beneath the woman. And then God is put on the bottom. So like everything is completely reversed and turned on its head, uh, which I think is kind of interesting to notice. Yeah, that's a great point because uh, obviously throughout the rest of the scriptures we've got the we've got the clear uh, sense of headship established, and uh, so yeah, uh, very very well said there, and uh, maybe we can talk more about that uh, as as time goes on. All 
right, now we come to the section where we discuss what we call the theme of this, uh, the, the basic nitty-gritty, the foundational aspects of the text. We want to consider what's really going on here and what's being said in terms of the bigger picture of the Bible, what's being said in terms of what's going on in the text, what's God saying, what are, what are the people there saying, and what's going on. I want to talk first of all about the serpent's goal. What's, uh, what's his basic goal? What's his basic function here? Um, for example, you know, I think a lot of uh, a common question that people will have, and, and I think, again, I think this is a valid question to some degree, is to stop and think, you know, if, if God didn't want them to do this, why did he allow a situation where this could happen? You know, it's kind of the same thing that people will say, well, how could, how could a just and loving God allow so many bad things to happen around the world? Well, I think we've got to remember that did God send the serpent to do this? I don't think so. There's nothing in the text to suggest that. And even more so than that, we have the serpent owning this action. And even beyond that, I would venture to say, and I would challenge you to think about the fact that really what Satan, what what the serpent is, I should say, the serpent is pulling Eve to do has a lot to do with a concept that we talk about called idolatry. I know when we think about idolatry, we might immediately think of some wooden idol. We may think of a statue. We may think of some sort of physical thing. And our memories, if we're, if we're Bible students, our memories turn back to the fact that God was always encouraging his people to not fall into idolatry, to not worship something made of wood or stone or something like that. Because they're, you know, it can't see, it can't speak, it can't help you in any possible way. So why, why do that? Well, there's more to idolatry than, than what we typically think. Would the serpent have been, you know, Brian, do you think the serpent would have been happy if Eve had just said, you know what, I really like you, serpent. <laughs> I think you're really great. I think you're a nice person. I'm going to take some of this wood from this tree. I'm going to I'm going to carve out a statue that looks just like you. And you know what? I'm going to I'm going to appreciate that statue. I'm going to have it around and and I'm really going to do that hmm. because I really like you. Um do you think the serpent would have been happy with that? Do you think that was his goal? I think he would have been happy with that, but I don't know if that was his his end goal, but but certainly that that relates to <laughs> the idea of the idolatry in the chapter. Yeah. Because, I mean, really, really what we see here is that you look at what he says, right? So he establishes what God has said, right? He, he refers back to that. Has God indeed said this? You know, and you get almost the implication. Did God really say that you, you shall, shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And it's interesting, this phrase, uh, this phrase reversal, because what did God say in chapter 2 and verse 16? He says, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. And so already what the serpent is doing is he's taking God's command and shifting it into a negative light. He's shifting it into something that is not desirable to do. Okay? Right. And then verse 2 she says, oh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but there's one that we can eat the fruit from. 
And God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, again, some critics will say, well, well, Adam was told about this, but Eve wasn't. Obviously, Eve was. Now, we don't have any textual evidence that God himself told her this. But the possibility is that Adam himself told her this and, and showed, her, showed her this. But, you know, uh, that's, that's neither here nor there. But she establishes, she carries forth the word of God there. But then, verse 4, the serpent says, Oh, no, you're, you're not going to surely die. That's the, the consequence that God's talking about is not going to happen. And what he's doing in verse 5, you, you, you look at this, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the idea that Satan is wanting her to change her idea about who God is, to change her idea about what God thinks uh, and the motivations that he has, you know, because basically we, we can make the argument, right, that, that the serpent is basically saying, hey, God's just saying that to keep you down. You know, he's just he's just wanting to keep you in this place. He's wanting to keep you imprisoned, and uh, he's wanting to keep you, you know, from from being all that you can be. Would you agree with that, Bryant? That that's basically what he seems to be saying. Yeah, it's interesting because it's almost like he's trying to say that God does not have their best interest in mind, but is actually keeping them back from more honor than they could have if they acted differently than what he said. Yeah, the serpent almost seems to be pushing for uh, the sense of ambition that some people mm-hmm. have. I, I think I think there are people, you know, there are plenty of us. I think I would venture to say all of us have been tempted with the idea of ambition before, that we can be great, that we could be someone that could be really wonderful um even in the sense of the thought of doing something that's helpful to others we can go too far to the point where oh i could really you know I, i've i've had someone tell, tell me before oh if i if i just had enough money then i could i could be a great benefactor i could do all these good things and and the problem with that is, I mean, there's sort of a side problem there is, uh, what are you doing with what you have right now? Um, but uh, but at the end of the at the end of the day, it's we have to ask ourselves, where does idolatry begin? Where does all idolatry start? You know, in Ezekiel 14 and verses four and five, uh, he's telling Ezekiel to say to Israel, "Thus says the Lord God: Every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart." and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet i the lord will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols that i may seize the house of israel by their heart because they're all estranged from me by their idols i think that's a amazing statement and that totally uh busts up the idea that idolatry was just a physical thing and it also busts up the idea, right. and this is getting a little bit into application, but it also busts up the idea that we don't have a problem with idolatry anymore, that we don't have idols in our society today. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. we do have mm-hmm. statues mm-hmm. and things like that, right? <laughs> but even beyond that, what are we setting up in our heart? And so the serpent seems to be, he wants, he wants Eve to set up a God in her heart that will allow her to partake of this fruit. 
and the more she sticks around and let's talk about the desire here you know what do you think bryant in terms of you know in verse six when the woman saw the tree was good for food uh she saw the good the good features of it um you know what's going on there yeah i think it's interesting uh what satan did to cultivate that desire because he never i i think it's easy to to almost miss this because he never told her to do that actually like satan actually never commanded her to eat the fruit and what he did though just the process uh to get to that point um like verse one has indeed god said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden so like satan knew that god had said something and it may not be a stretch to imply that he knew exactly what God said. So he was asking so that he could shift her focus uh, and get her to look at it differently. And I think that's that's really it. Is it's a matter of uh, it's a matter of perspective and shifting our perspective. Um, so like, go to Matthew six, uh, Stephen, and if you're listening. Um, if you have a Bible open, I think it would benefit you to turn there. Um, otherwise, I'll just read the verse. And I am reading out of the New King James Version, but Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something particularly in Matthew six twenty-two through 23 that is worded in a uh, really confusing way, at least for me. Uh, it, probably one of the most confusing things he says in the Sermon on the Mount, but he says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And the context for him saying this is idolatry because he's talking about uh, not serving God or mammon, or not serving mammon, but rather serving God exclusively in 24. And verse 19 through 21, he is teaching about storing up treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. So don't put all your honor, don't invest yourself in the things of the world. So 22 and 23 really just seems to be describing faith in a really interesting way, where it's the idea that faith changes your perspective and your perception of the things that you see and the value that you place on visible things and how you perceive those things. So faith is going to determine how I both perceive the things that I see and my perspective of the world around me in terms of like what I value and what I esteem, what I honor. And so in verse 24, the idea is you can't honor God and mammon in the same way. It has to be only God. It's impossible to serve them both. Uh, and it's interesting, too, not to get too sidetracked with Matthew 6, but uh, verse 26, he says, look at the birds of the air. And he makes this lesson out of just being able to look at one bird, how God takes care of that one bird. And there's an application that if your eye was really good, you could look at one bird and see that God's taking care of that bird who doesn't toil or reap and the implication is that God will take care of you because you're more valuable. I've never learned that on my own looking at a bird. Uh, but when you go back to Genesis 3, think what Satan is trying to do is get her eye 
to be dark so that what's inside of her, her inner person, would be full of darkness. And I think that's exactly what he does. And so it's a process of really getting her eye from being good to being bad. So in verse 6, I think it's also interesting that it's almost like she looked at it this way for the first time, right? Like it doesn't seem like she had looked at it that way before. And I'm sure she had seen it before. So I think the idea is Satan did actually change her perspective because it's not like it's not like the tree had taken a different appearance all of a sudden. It's that she looked at it differently this time, that she had a different perception and a different perspective. And that perspective and perception were not on the basis of God's word anymore. It was because the honor had shifted from God to another. And the point you're making, uh, I think, is exactly right that really what changed her perception and her perspective is that the honor had shifted to someone besides God and really it was herself. And that's where the, that's, that's how deeply affecting idolatry is, is it, it makes it impossible for us to understand the things that bring God honor and glory. Uh, And it makes it so that the things that, the things that put us in the place of honor um, we're unable to understand just the depravity and the consequence that comes from that. Um, so I just think it's it's just interesting just how Satan did this and how, like you were saying, it is something of the heart. And Satan obviously understood that, which is why he approached it in this, in this way particularly. And when you think about this too, you think about the methods that Satan is employing for this. Is he appealing to... Uh, Eve's sense of truth and honor and justice mm. and uprightness. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, he's not appealing to anything. He's not even really reasoning. He's manipulating her. He's right. manipulating her, and 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 that shows us something. You know, there is there is the sense that when we look at that darkness, you know, kind of to go along with what you brought up out of Matthew six, there's the sense that when we look at the darkness and appreciate how evil and how wrong that is it can help us appreciate the light a whole lot more you know to me later on for example when you get to the book of judges where everything is going wrong and there's all this terrible things going on and you see these pinpricks of good things and and that helps them shine that much more in the time later on in the biblical timeline of the divided kingdom when you have so many wicked and evil kings among god's people and yet you have these pinpricks of light in these good kings who do the right thing, who want to help steer the people in the right way. Uh, it just helps it shine that much more. And so understanding Satan's methods to some degree are, is going to help us appreciate the methods of God. Because what does God do? God tells us directly what the situation is. He tells us reality. He Mm -hmm. points it out to us. Mm -hmm. He lays it before us and he says, you make your choice. You know, you can, you can be with me and you can be in this relationship with me and everything will be totally fine. I will provide for you. I will be there for you. I will help you. Uh, but there's going to be consequences if you go the wrong way. And uh, I think, you know, earlier you mentioned about the consequences being greater than the initial warning. That's kind of what we want to get to to now as we as we move along with this. Unless did you have anything else on that point of idolatry? We're going to revisit that in application. But yeah, I don't know if this would be more for application. Um, 
but you know you can certainly return to it because there's really kind of a lot that goes into this but I think we learn about God's nature in this you know as in the last podcast you know I mentioned that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had to be there because uh, God chooses to do good and he denies the ability he has to commit evil um, but when Eve made this choice, she looked at the tree. It's like, well, why didn't God create the tree to look evil? Like, how come how come the fruit didn't have thorns all over it? So as soon as you touch it, you know, it makes your hand bleed and it hurts a lot to even touch it. Or make it look, like, really rotten and oozing. Like, it's just disgusting to look at. But, I mean, it looks great, you know, and it says it looked like it could make you wise. But, you know, that's a part of the image of God is God doesn't make choices on the basis of selfish desires. God makes choices that are not in the judgment of appearance. God makes judgments out of the best interest of another on the basis of a future promise. So he doesn't make, God never makes choices just on the basis of the visible visible current circumstance. He's prudent and he always acts with a future intention in mind on what's in the best interest of another. So Eve, when she made this choice, was falling devastatingly short of the image of God she was created in. Um, so we do learn about the image of God, but not because she successfully abided by that image, but because she violated the image. You know, one thing is that if, if God had done, as you said, made the tree actually undesirable and say, you know what, I don't want them to deal with this. And so I'm going to, I'm going to you know keep them away from this. Uh, that, that would have been manipulation in and of itself. He right. would have been manipulating them through the appearance of that. So, I mean, awesome, awesome point there. It kind of makes me think of the parent that is so protective of their child that they never let their child go outside. They never let their child mm. experience mm-hmm. anything new. They shelter them. Uh, one, one could even say they, they smother them, you know, and you know, as, as a father, I know I've got to protect my son. I've got to take care of my son, but I also need to allow my son to make his own choices. Um, and, and you think about it, this is exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, God has established boundaries with Adam. He's established boundaries with Eve. He said, this is where the line is. And if you cross it, there's going to be consequences. He doesn't do this because he relishes punishment. He doesn't do this because he relishes these consequences. He does it because he loves them. And that's really the true balance of love. The ability to say, I love you. I want to protect you. I want to provide for you. But if you choose not to embrace me, if you choose not to love me, you know what? I mean, there's there's going to be consequences there for you, but that's not going to change my love for you. That's not going to, you know, let, let's understand here. We're about to get into this idea of the consequences that God is going to proclaim upon the serpent, upon the woman, and upon the man. But let me make absolutely clear. God loved Adam and Eve no less once they left the garden. You know, his love for them was always constant, just like his love is always constant for us. Now, we have to be able to discern and understand the difference between God loving us and us being within the grace of God or within the 
acceptance or being pleasing to God. I think there's a distinction there that we can make. Uh, God still loved Adam and Eve after they sinned. But because they sinned, everything had to change. Uh, because that that was the way that God had set it up. That was the way that, that that was the decision that He made, and so we see that He had this uh, level of control over them, of course. But that's just because He's God. Ultimately, He wasn't doing this to hurt them, and we'll 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 kind of go back to that in application. But so when we look at the consequences here, that the Lord says to the serpent. You know, because you've done this, you're going to be cursed than, than all cattle. So interesting kind of parallel here. Uh, he was more cunning than any beast of the field, but now he's cursed more than all cattle. Uh, can we suppose that before this time, maybe the serpent looked different than uh, what the, you know the serpents that we have today? Possibly so. You know, maybe did did he have arms and legs? Maybe I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but 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 again, that get, gets into some some speculation there. But the whole point is, on he says, on your belly you shall go. You're going to eat dust all the days of your life. Uh, there's going to be a consequence for this animal, and that's just interesting to me. I, I don't know exactly why. I don't know if it's something where the serpent himself, uh, you know, because of his association with Satan. And maybe we're getting too deep into this. Maybe we're trying to pick this apart when it's a lot more simple than that. Speaking of getting deep, I can kind of offer uh, uh, something on that too. Um, and this is just talking out loud, you know, whatever it's worth. But, um, you know, just something that I think about this. He may be still actually talking to Satan, the person Satan, you know, and serpent obviously is the title that's in this chapter. And maybe when he's talking about on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life, just in terms of degradation and humiliation, that Satan is going to be pressed so low that it's almost like his face is being pressed into the ground. And I think about that, God saying, you're going to be put in the lowest position because of this. You know, on the totem pole, you're, at, you're going to be slammed to the bottom and pressed down to the point where your mouth is eating the dust. And uh, there's language like that in the Psalms, and unfortunately I don't have um, a reference written on hand. Um, but when the psalmists would feel like they were at the lowest places, they would say things like that, that they were eating dust. Uh, and I don't think it's that they were literally like, you know, grabbing the dirt and like making that their meal. But I think it's the idea of just absolute degradation, that they felt like they couldn't be in a more degraded position. Uh, so maybe that's a promise of Satan put himself in the high place in a sense, but God was going to put him in the lowest place at all times. Well, that's that's certainly a good thing to consider here because, you know, really when we think about this, Satan has, again, has taken it upon himself to do this. And uh, despite what critics might say, it's not something where he was trying to do something else. I mean, by the way, there, there are people out there that, that believe in the inverse of this creation story. They believe that Satan, uh, was freeing man that, that from, from the garden of Eden, that, that God had imprisoned man in that garden and he freed him with the gift of knowledge. And, uh, this kind of goes along with, uh, Gnostic philosophy and things like that. Um, it's a whole bunch of, of, uh, nonsense. 
and especially when we when you look at what the text says and you look at the you look at what's going on in this text like th- there's no doubt that this is his doing and even with the consequence and, and the the pronouncement that God is making on him I, I I think it's even more interesting than what happens to him physically or you know really what what's going on here uh, verse 15 is super interesting what in the world are you talking about I mean I, I can only imagine uh, being a Hebrew in the time after Moses had written this and looking at this and saying, I'll put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know, what, what, what is that really speaking toward? Well, I think we're really looking at the true beginning of the messianic promise. Uh, Abraham later on is going to be given three promises. One of those promises is that through his seed, all nations would be blessed. And that's pointing to Jesus. That's pointing to him blessing all nations through essentially his sacrifice. The fact that we can have salvation freely given to us today uh, in, in obeying and submitting to him. And because of this, because of this faithfulness, because of this obedience, there's a consequence for Satan in all of this. You know, and, and you look at the distinction between this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, if you're going to get injured somewhere, what's worse? Is it worse to uh, have your heel hit or by, by something or injured in some way? Or is it worse to have your head injured? I would say your head. Absolutely. Right. So, uh, we've got immediately the superiority of this woman's seed being put forward because the he he shall bruise your head he's not talking about adam here and that's the only he that we have right here other than god and we you have this promise here and i would really venture to say help help us think about this especially in terms of idolatry remember that's the goal of the serpent And I believe that's really what his goal is going to continue to be. I I don't have any Bible for this, but it it makes sense when you consider and ponder the thought that, you know, if Satan had this promise all the way back here, why wouldn't he try and go off and help create false religions to help uh, inspire people to, to create idols and to create all these things that go against the God of heaven, that go against the God of creation. Um, why wouldn't he want to make these things seem desirable? And so uh, I, I think we can see this enmity, this, this, this fight, and I think this fight is really exemplified in the New Testament as talked about as the, the fight between the spirit and the flesh. And, and that fight continues on. But at the core of that is the fight. We met, people talk about the fight between good and evil and, and the whole idea of like, well, who's going to win? And, you know, and, or people will say, well, you can't have good without evil. You can't have evil without good. And so you know, these are balancing forces that balance themselves out. But this is not a balance here. I don't think God ever presents good and evil. I don't, God, I don't think God ever presents the fight between him and the adversary as a balanced fight. It's not balanced. Jesus talks about in the New Testament when he was talking about uh, uh, healing people of unclean spirits, he tells a parable. And he talks about the fact that 
no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And so what he's talking about in that parable is he himself is who's going to bind the strong man. The strong man is Satan. What that means is Satan is strong. He's got some strength to him, but it can never match up to the strength of God. It can never match up to the strength of deity. It never has, and it never will. And so uh, I just think that that's really interesting to look at. This is really where that conflict ultimately begins. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because this promise seems like it takes, you know, various forms through the history of God fulfilling it. Uh, You think about even the many times that God directly intervened or I think about the flood Uh, Joseph, when he was taken out of the pit and became second in command in Egypt. David and Bathsheba with a great grievous sin, but then a temple was built on the very place that David had to make sacrifices uh, later to make restitution for uh, numbering the people. And it's Solomon who built that temple, who came from Bathsheba. And so, you know, through the biblical narrative, you know, it cycles through over and over where Satan does do some damage but God continuously through that damage actually gains victory and it's not that he gains victory you know almost in uh, a different path it's actually through the curse and the injuries that Satan brings God keeps reversing them and turning them on their head demonstrating that his power is so far beyond the power and the injuries of Satan that he actually uses those injuries to bring his victory. And I mean, isn't that what we see in Jesus in the crucifixion that Satan was injuring, obviously Jesus, but in the grand scheme of things, that momentary light affliction produced an, a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. Uh, and even in the lives of the righteous, I think that yes, uh, the Christian life is filled with pressing afflictions uh, for various reasons, but the promises of God are so glorious and his help through faith is so far exceeding that really those things are just as Paul said in Second Corinthians 4. They're, they're a light affliction and ultimately it demonstrates that the power of God is so overwhelming uh, compared to the light affliction like Stephen was saying. So I think that's such a good point you know, to point that out. Well, and I think when we get to the consequences for Eve and the consequences for Adam, we do need to remember and understand like how 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 would they have felt right mm. now i mean how 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 must it feel for adam like you know how terrible must they feel about this uh it's not just that they've that they've done this that they've done you know they've disobeyed god they've disappointed him they've grieved him uh they've they've caused so much but at the same time like you say even in moments of great darkness, God can take what looks like a true ultimate defeat and he can have a seed there <laughs> again. You know, maybe that's a little too exact there, but, uh, but he has a seed. He has a start here that will go somewhere wonderful hmm. that will provide true victory. And, uh, so a- as we go through these other consequences, you know, looking at, at the woman, looking at the man, this is not the final result. And we know that there is hope, actually, even past this. Adam and Eve didn't forsake God after this time. 
uh, in fact, we see their descendants uh, having, uh, for the most part, we see their descendants as good people. Uh, who are who are trying to serve God, especially uh, after after Abel's put to death, we'll see Seth's line start up, and that that really will be a family line that will that will uh, want to serve God, that will have a desire to serve God. But the the woman Eve is saying, "I will multiply your sorrow and your conception." Uh, I don't know if this means that the woman could have had children before. But just it wouldn't wouldn't have been painful, or if it just basically means that you you know you will birth children now. You're not going to be living forever. You don't have access to to the uh, tree of life that was in the garden as well. Uh, the possibility is they could have stayed here forever, but now you're going to have sorrow and pain in childbirth, and and also her desire is going to be for her husband. Now, what we're about to say probably is going to be controversial to some people. Um, and I want you to know, as a listener out there, by no means are we vaulting one gender over another. And neither does God. But as a consequence of what Eve did, we have the consequence here being her desire, her her something within her is going to be for her husband and her husband is going to rule over her. Now this does not mean in terms of, I don't want to get too far into this because this is not really the time or the place per se, uh, in terms of the Bible story right now. But I just want to make absolutely clear to everybody out there. Uh, God's not setting up man as a tyrant to be waited on hand and foot. And I think when we see man's consequences, I think we need to understand that. Because I would venture to say man's consequences, the consequences for Adam here, are uh, in some ways just as great as the consequences for the woman. Uh, Yes, you have these physical consequences, you have the, the pain of childbirth and things like that. But also you have, in this context, a reminder Right. Uh, Brian, you mentioned earlier in the initial observations that it was a reversal of the roles in creation that Satan had lured her into. And so it's almost like God is is reestablishing these things that really it's the other way. It's God and then man and then woman. And again, that's not something I hope I hope the listeners out there aren't just tuning us out here. And I hope you're not just stopping, uh, you know, stopping the podcast right now. I hope you'll take the time and listen and and discover with us the truth about these things um, and, and understand the truth about these things. Because we are not saying that women are inferior people uh, and we're not saying that women are not able to be all that they should be uh, without a man. But the text seems to put it pretty plain plainly forward here that Eve made this mistake and there were consequences because of that. Uh, do you have anything on that? So I'm just going to think out loud, but look at chapter four, verse seven, and tell me if you see some language similarities. Go ahead and read that. So it says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And this is referring to God talking to Cain, uh, whose countenance has fallen. So he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And if you go back to Genesis 3, verse 16, the latter part of the verse, I'll read, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And so I think that's kind of interesting. Um, And again, just thinking out loud that, you know, sin's desire is to rule over the man and God's telling Cain, you need to have sin under your rule. Um, So maybe it could be a consequence for sin is that, you know, the woman would actually have the desire to put herself in the higher position, like out of the creation order, you know, that she was designed to be a helpmeet, but sin would give her the desire to seek beyond that. But maybe that God is saying, you know, this is inescapable, you know, man will rule over you. Um, So maybe it's that the idea of pride. uh, And I think that's what we see in the world that, you know, the world does not understand the glory of God's designed roles. And as a result of that, you can see, I think, the consequences really in every culture and every nation, uh, by and large. Um, You can see it in our culture, I think, pretty clearly. Um, And there's just so much confusion and disarray and difficulty. So again, just just thinking out loud that it may be that the, the, the woman would have a desire to exceed beyond the role that God has placed and yet God would would still make sure that the man would hold the position, uh, which of course creates a lot of a lot of difficulty, a lot of painful difficulty. Um, and like think about in marriage, if a woman, you know, if the man is wanting to lead in the marriage, but the woman keeps trying to put herself in that position and undermines the man's leadership, that creates a lot of problems. Um, So again, just to reinforce that idea that, you know, maybe God is saying that this is going to create a lot of problems between you and the man because you've indulged in this prideful desire. Let me say at this point, too, because, you know, when we get to controversial things like this, we don't want you to just hang up. We don't want you to stop listening. We want you to tell us about it. Uh, Email us about it, because the thing is, we're, we're fallible. We're human. We might be wrong about this. And so we'd love to have a conversation with you about this yeah, as well. Absolutely. Um, God's word is is true. God's word is true in every way, but we can mishandle it. We can we cannot be seeing some things. So um, you know, if you're listening to this and you might think, well, you know, here's something that they're not really seeing. Email us, uh, walking through the book at protonmail.com. So please do that. When we look at the consequences for the man, first thing that we have is that the ground's going to be cursed. And you mentioned earlier, I think, for, for his sake. It's, it, I think we mentioned actually before we began, uh, you mentioned before we began the recording today that it's for his sake that the ground is cursed. And I think that's important for us to see is that the consequences upon the earth do not rest on Eve's actions, right? Uh, They don't necessarily rest on Eve's actions. They rest on the actions of man. There's a statement in a book in the New Testament that saying, you know, the woman, Eve, was deceived, but the man was not deceived. 
in that context, uh, again, it's a place where God is talking about the authority uh, of man over over woman and things like that. And one thing to keep in mind in that context is that who really was doing the the rebelling here? I mean, there's a sense where you see that that there's rebellion with Eve. But again, I really get more of the sense that she was she was manipulated by the serpent. Um, and by the way, <laughs> it's not because she was a woman that she was manipulated or that she was fooled into something or deceived. Anybody can be deceived. But note, there's no resistance from Adam. There's not even a peep of resistance from him. He says, well, you know, this is obviously something that she wants. And so uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go along with this, even though I know that it's wrong. You see, that's the thing the the man is the one who rebelled. And so he, I think we can understand bears the most responsibility for what occurred. And, and that's a part, by the way, of, of that whole concept and that whole topic that uh, so many people will not bring up. That the fact that, you know, the fact that the man is to be head over the woman, that bears more responsibility. That's not a place where man is setting up himself up as a king and it doesn't matter what he does. It does matter what he does. Ultimately, he's supposed to be a leader. Adam was supposed to be leading his wife, Eve. But we see the consequence. He's going to have hard labor bringing things out of the ground. There's going to be thorns, there's going to be thistles, and he's going to eat of the herb of the field versus the herb of the garden. What was life like in Eden? Everything was provided for them. Uh, they had the fruit ready, it seems to be, on the trees. Uh, very easy life, I think, overall. It's, that's the impression that I get. They don't have any want for anything. They're tending and caring for the garden, but now it seems like this is going to be a lot more work. And I'll tell you, even today, if you want to go out there and plow the fields and grow vegetables and grow something from the ground, it takes some work to do that, you know? And we can even appreciate that today. Yeah, we've made ways to make it a little bit easier, but there's still so much that, that we have to do that uh, if, if what we're seeing of the garden was true, then... Uh, obviously man didn't have to do that beforehand. And so verse 19, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. It's not going to be necessarily pleasurable. Um, food is going to be something, a means to an end. And, uh, and even, you know, God reminding him of the stuff that he's made of, uh, you know, you're made out of dust and you're going to return to that dust at this point. You've lost the you've lost the possibility of immortality at this point. So they're driven from the garden after that point. Yeah, it's interesting. Something I just thought about um, with the curse to the woman, and I guess it's really all of them, uh, because ultimately God, through difficulty, was going to bring the Messiah, which is from God, and that's life from God with verse 15 verse 16 children are from God uh, God's the one who brings that life and allows that life but there's pain in the flesh until that life comes which brings life and relief 
And that's like the Messiah again. You know, there was pain in the flesh until life and relief came through the Messiah. And then the ground is cursed, but it brings forth life and relief in your food. Uh, and I had never really thought about that before, how like in every one of these curses, there's difficulty of the flesh, but relief from God at the end of it that is gained. Um, so that's, that's kind of interesting. It's almost like it teaches where difficulty comes from, where the curse comes from, but then where does relief come from? And maybe that's a part of God drawing us to seek that relief, that because of sin, we need to be drawn to see that with God, there's life and relief, not in the flesh, not in the things of the flesh, but it's from God. Yeah, and the idea that we can be... Right, We right, can right. be freed from this. We can't, you know, we don't... The way this right. life is is not the way that it has to be. And yeah. that's a message of hope. That's not a message of destruction. That's not a message of... And, and, and again, it centers us back on the fact that this is something that man did, and and that's where the ownership is, you know? Uh, it's not on God right. setting him up and tricking him and manipulating him to this goal. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting on that. Uh, something else I think that I noticed in this reading right now is God's self-control in all of this. You know, like his judgments aren't overly exasperated. You know, it doesn't seem like God lost control of himself and his emotions. God actually doesn't, like he's, he's his whole world has basically been ruined by the choice of one person one time. And yet he controls his anger. He doesn't seem unapproachable. I don't like look at God here and say, wow, I guess I can never approach that God. That's wow, ludicrous. No, I mean, God is controlled. He's gentle, even in his judgments. And the fact that he works this out in such a fine thread, that life is still evidently available and attainable, and yet there is still evidence of a deep curse that comes from the flesh, that's pretty incredible to balance it out that way. Uh, that's, um, that just really amazes me a lot and says something about God's wisdom and God's self-control, I think. As we close our episode, we want to talk about the application of what we studied and what we've looked at today. And uh, when we consider this, again, I want to impress upon you as a listener and impress upon each of us as well that we can study the Bible, we can read it, we can spend time with it, but if we never apply it to ourselves, if we never apply it to our lives, we have not benefited truly from it. And so this is the part of the show that we want to talk about those things and uh, what this really means for our life and what, what this means in terms of, is there something I need to change? Is there something I need to consider? Uh, and, and really, interesting thing about application, it all comes down to you and God. Um, that's what it really comes down to. Uh, don't, don't take what we're saying on this show and say, okay, well, I'm going to live the way that they're saying that I should live. No, go to the Bible and study it for yourself. And learn from God how you should live. Don't don't take what we say, uh, because again, we're we're human, we're fallible, um, and so uh, one of the things that I kind of pulled out of this today, of course, the, uh, maybe this is super obvious, but 
Every word of God, every command of God must be obeyed for our own good. Um, what happened here was, was not good for Adam, was not good for Eve, and arguably wasn't good for Satan. <laughs> and uh, in Deuteronomy 6.24, it says that the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. That's Moses speaking to the Israelites there. And so uh, if we want to have a life that's good, that's fruitful, that's productive, if we want to have a life that's fulfilling, then we need to be obeying God. We need to be in obedience to him and understand his will and do everything we can to, to fulfill that will in our lives. Another thing I kind of pulled out here is that in terms of idols, again, to, to revisit the theme of idolatry here, uh, this can be a very deceptive thing. Um, 1 John 5, 21 the Apostle John is saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He ends his letter in that way. And uh, one thing I didn't mention is when we look at this in a mental way, when we look at this in a way that, you know, philosophically and in our heart, in our mind, we can build up a God. We can build up an idol without having built anything physically. And even to the point where we are reading our Bible, we're studying our Bible, we can think that the God of the Bible is this way when that God that we have constructed in our mind bears absolutely no resemblance to the God of the Bible. And I think a lot of people in this world are like that. Maybe they go to church. Maybe they're part of, of, of Bible studies. Maybe they spend time in soup kitchens. Maybe they're trying to help people who are poor. Maybe they're doing a lot of things. But the God that they have constructed in their heart is not the same God in the Bible because they're not truly following him in the right way and the right motivation. Uh, again, you know, it's something where our heart, our actions, our mind, our spirit all have to be in harmony with God's will. There's no part of our life where we have the ability to say, oh, well, I know that this says this, but you know, God loves me. And so he, he's not going to, he's going to be okay with me disobeying this command this one time. We have to really stop and, and, and be very careful about that kind of thinking and, uh, and consider the folly that we see in this chapter because of that kind of thinking. Uh, it's, it's very, very destructive. And, and so we need to be willing to see that in our lives and be willing to tear down the idols in our own heart so that we can truly see uh, the light of, of the Lord God in our life. Yeah, no, those are really good applications. Um, I guess maybe just a couple things. Uh, you know, one is just understanding, like you were saying, you know, how deceptive sin is. Because it's interesting, there was a sense in which the things Satan said were true. You know, they were able to know good and evil uh, in a sense. You know, their eyes were opened in a sense. And being like God, I mean, that's what God says in verse 22 in a sense. But it was all in a sinful way, you know. Um, so the woman... Uh, even says in verse 13 despite the sense of truth in those things she still understands the serpent deceived her because what she desired isn't what she got and the consequences like we've said before were much more 
far-reaching and long-lasting than she could have imagined. I mean, we still today are suffering the consequences of these choices they made, right? Um, and so that's the thing is we need to acknowledge our tendency to undermine the true consequence of sin and recognize how much work God had to do to get us to recognize our sin for what it is when he sent Jesus to suffer on the cross for us. And so we need to really look at Jesus's suffering, I think, really intently to understand the gravity of our choices and understand just how damaging our sin is. And I think another thing on that too, and what, what is sin? Um, you know, the woman, when she looked at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think by appearance that had nothing to do with her relationship with her husband relationally, but had everything to do with her relationship with God. And that's really what sin is. You know, sometimes sin doesn't seem to have anything to do with me hurting someone else or saying something damaging to someone else. But there are things that relate to my respect for God and his word, even when it doesn't appear to have any effect on people around me at all. Yeah, the white the white lie that you tell to uh, right. to save someone's feelings or to keep someone right, from being right. hurt, well, you still hurt God. You still grieved Him. Yeah, even sins committed privately, you know, that are just for yourself, or even sins of how we worship God, and it seems like nobody's being hurt, right? But the thing is, her sin did affect her relationship with her husband drastically, actually. Uh, changed everything. And so we need to understand that sin always affects our relationships because it affects our relationship with God. And the only reason we would think differently is because we are deceived by the deceptiveness of sin. And so recognizing that we are actively in that deception and need to trust God to bring us out of that deception, I think is an important thing because understanding the, the gravity of our choices should instill within us a lot of caution, reverence, and fear, but of a healthy kind and I think that's a good application for this. And then another thing, too, um, that I think is an application is, you know, just understanding that, like you were saying, you know, God's trying to get us to see the goodness and the value of his word, that his word is life and it's light. And she could have very easily have just stayed in his word very easily. You know, it would have been a very easy choice, actually. Um, and God's trying to draw us back in, you know, and the fact that we don't die physically when we sin is is amazing. And so God's given us great liberty. He's given us a lot of freedom and he sacrificed Jesus to give us that freedom because we're made in his image. And God makes decisions with the self-control of his liberties for our honor and benefit. And so the choice that should be made is to make our choices with the resolve to honor God because that's what reverses all of these things. You know, God did, he reversed these things in Jesus. All of these things have been undone ultimately through Jesus Christ. And so the order, the, the, the freedom, the, the joy, the peace of being in God's presence, we can have all of those things right now if we just get ourselves to abide in Christ Jesus and everything that's involved in that. And that's the invitation that God is extending to us is not to be cast out of his presence like this chapter ended, but actually to be drawn in and stay there forever and to receive something even greater than what they had in the Garden of Eden. Um, so there's definitely application in a lot of different layers in this and definitely more than we can we can cover. It's just it's so rich, you know, it's amazing. Absolutely. I want to say one thing about something you mentioned about the fact that we still suffer from this sin today. 
And uh, I'm just going to say this, and uh, we're not going to go deep into it. We don't have the time today, and it's not really fitting for us to get into it in this episode. But when we say we're still suffering for this sin today, let me make absolutely clear, uh, we're not talking about inherited sin. We're not talking about right. the idea of us having a sin nature. And I'm just going to say pretty plainly right. that that is false doctrine. That's not what the Bible teaches. Um, and I would encourage you to email us on that if you disagree. Uh, if you want to have a conversation about that, maybe that's something that, you know, another thing that I've talked about doing just sort of intermittent uh, episodes from time to time, maybe we can have like a panel discussion where we talk about some of these issues um, and, and and discuss, you know, topically some of these big things of the Bible. And so we may want to talk about that at some point. What What is sin nature? What is that really talking about? And And when we're born into the world, what's our spiritual condition? Um, what we what we do mean when we're talking about we still suffer these things today is we we have a decayed world, we've got a, a world that is dying, we have people that are dying, uh, we have uh, a, a world basically that is degenerating more and more over time physically, um, and so all of that kind of comes together to that point, and that's what we mean by saying we still suffer from the effects of that sin today. Uh, so again, I would encourage you to email us on that, walking through the book at protonmail.com, and uh, love to talk about that at any point. Brian, thank you so much for all of your input today. Was there anything else that you wanted to add before we finish up? Yeah, really just one thing. You know, this this podcast I think has been our longest one so far, but it's because, you know, Genesis 3 really is such a rich chapter. There's so much to talk about, you know, and we didn't even talk about everything it's it's just really not possible with this chapter and so you know if someone is listening i would invite you to read through it and meditate on it because the lessons that can be learned so far exceed what we're able to talk about even with the things that we have talked about but it's because god's writings are so rich because they teach about his character which itself is rich in unfathomable and immeasurable ways and so it certainly invite the listener to continue thinking about these things and uh, continue thinking about application and things that we can learn from the way that Satan talked to Eve and how Eve responded and the curses and what God had to do because of that and think about how that relates to Jesus and God will certainly bless you as you consider and think on those things uh, continuously. Very well said. Appreciate that. Well, yeah, we easily could have done two episodes on this same chapter. Uh, if, yeah, we, if we wanted definitely. to. And uh, I probably will be editing this down some to some degree. But, uh, but we are thankful for you, the listener. We're thankful for your time. We're thankful for your investment in looking at this and, and your investment of time in studying the investment of your heart in terms of, uh, you know, hopefully the reason you're listening to this is that, that you want to know more about God. And we hope that we're doing okay in, in encouraging these things. But at the same time, it all comes down to you. Are you going to open up the, the book for yourself? Are you going to look at it for yourself and know these things that are true? Uh, we encourage you to do so. We hope you will join us next time. Uh, until then, again, please email us, walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. And we certainly hope to uh, hear from you very soon. 
We'll be back next time with Genesis chapter 4. The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.